Hey there. Welcome to the More Miles podcast. I'm Lauren. I'm Michelle. I'm Zach. And we are the More Miles Run Coaching team, or part of the More Miles Run Coaching team. Scott was unable to be here today, so it is the three of us. And we have a special guest with us here today. We are here with Maggie Geese, doctor of physical therapy and founder of Gaia Women's Physical Therapy. Hi, Maggie. How are you? Hi. I'm good. Thank you for joining us. Glad to be before here. I start, before I start rambling, um, our topic for today is pelvic PT. Um, this is Maggie's field of expertise, and that is why we have her on as our guest today to introduce us to what pelvic physical therapy is, um, who should be thinking about it, what we need to be aware of. We're going to cover a lot today, I think. Um, but before we even dive into our main topic, I want to talk a little bit about you, Maggie, and, and who you are and what brought you into this field. I know it's something you're very passionate about. So let's start there. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. What, who are you? And ultimately, what led you into this field of physical therapy? Yeah, um, I don't have a traditional story, um, which a lot of the traditional enter to PT profession is like, you know, someone gets hurt, they had a really good uh, rehabilitative experience, and then it kind of sent them on that traje trajectory. Um, I was in college for marine science and um, sought out my school specifically for that degree. Um, and about halfway in, I had maybe... Um, a less optimal freshman year. Uh, and so I started kind of just like out on my own. Um, I would run in the, on the track that was right behind my uh, dorm room. And uh, I got a job and that was kind of my like late night thing. And I would just go there and run on the track. And that was kind of like my personal time. Um, and so fast forward, you know, marine science was kind of not really keeping my interest very much. Um, and I switched majors a couple times um, and basically landed in sport and exercise science, um, which I kind of felt like I had finally found my home. Um, and ultimately I had a really amazing teacher um, who was an exercise physiologist and his wife was a physical therapist. Um, so I ended up finishing with uh, my sport and exercise science degree, um, had followed his wife for several different days in the clinic. Um, and that's how I kind of decided I was like, huh, I'm going to apply to PT school. Um, and this was kind of before the days that PT school has become incredibly competitive. Um, I applied to one school and I got in and it was in Maryland and, uh, I guess the rest is history. Um, but I can say that I think there were things along the way, like, you know, I have had a movement in my life um, since like the middle school and high school um, time of my life, my family's in healthcare. Um, so looking back, it probably wasn't by chance that I ended up here. Um, but that's kind of my story as I had just like a really influential teacher. Um, I prioritized movement in my own life. Um, I found my happy place on the track during college, um, and then I had a relatively simple access to school. Um, and when I came out of school, I went into orthopedics, um, which served me through like many different jobs over probably like six years. Um, and I think that's kind of like the rest is history. Um, that's just kind of how I landed in orthopedics. So I think most of our listeners are familiar with physical therapy, with what a traditional physical therapist does. Um, what led you to ultimately specialize in pelvic PT specifically? What inspired you to go down that route? Yeah, so I think this is interesting because even in school, I had an interest in women's health, which was a very like catch-all term at that point. Um, meaning like I knew that there were physical therapists that worked with women who had certain diagnoses and, um, you know, I could maybe fall into the feminist category and like, you know, women are tough and we rock kind of, uh, bias. And so there was always like, uh, 
an interest there, um, but very little education in our programs actually uh, focus on the pelvic floor or even kind of, I mean, now it's becoming a little bit more, but so I've been a PT for 12 years now. So we got like some anatomy on here's the name of the pelvic floor muscles. Um, so in one of my first rotations, it was actually in Hagerstown, I did have an opportunity to uh, observe a therapist that did some lymphedema and some pelvic floor training. Um, it was kind of minimal. It was like cool at the time. Um, but to be honest, it wasn't an area where I could really request a, um, a rotation like that was full time in pelvic. It wasn't as aware, uh, like the, the niche wasn't as obvious to like students. And also there weren't a lot of, you know, CIs that are taking like a hundred percent caseload in pelvic. It tends to be that there's a lot of orthopedic providers that are dabbling in pelvic health. Um, so, I mean, kind of what happened was I just went through school and I knew that there was an interest there, um, but there's minimal education and like direction to really like head into that uh, area. Uh, and I practiced for six years, basically until I had my first child. Um, and then um, when I recognized about a year and a half postpartum, it was the first time that I was like, oh, I think this is going on in my body. Um, which was diastasis recti at the time. Um, and I was like, oh, like people do this and I have to find someone. And there, I think it was starting to come into the media and, you know, social media and stuff like that. Um, so that was when I sought out my first, basically my first pelvic floor therapy. Um, and then that got really real after my second, because I had like real pelvic floor stuff going on. Um, and, and that it was, it kind of just took me down the same track of like, okay, like I know this is going on with my body. Um, I'm not, I don't have the education or the experience to treat myself. And so I need to find someone. And that was freaking hard. Um, it was really hard to find someone that specialized in that and could take me and had room on their waiting list and all of that. Um, and so I did therapy for several months. Um, and then when my second little girl was about seven months was when I took my first pelvic course, which actually was an external course by uh, an Australian physio um, named Anthony Lowe. And he's um, a really special guy. Um, and kind of the rest kind of fell in after that. So after I took that course and I started, you know, take utilizing what I learned in that to try to help myself, um, then I kind of started going down the rest of the coursework, like internal and just more specializations. Um, I'll say the other thing that happened to me is I felt like the care that I was getting wasn't what I was hoping for. And it didn't really meet the standards of how I thought things should be addressed, how I should be talked to both as a patient and a professional. Um, and so it was really disappointing that I couldn't one, find someone within like a hour radius. I ended up going to Arlington, Virginia, um, to actually get care that I thought was, uh, like better than subpar. Um, and so that was the other part of it. So when I started getting into pelvic, I was like, holy crap, like I have to do this. There's no one here in, you know, this Washington County, um, Berkeley County area. Um, and I was like, I've always wanted to do this. And if I, I mean, I'm an educated physical therapist and like I had to go to Arlington, Virginia to find a provider. I was like, I know what I'm doing and what I'm looking for. What are all these women doing that don't know what's going on in their bodies and don't know who they're looking for and how to navigate the medical system. Um, so that was another really driving piece of like, um, you know, I can, I could be the person that helps bridge that gap in this area to provide like adequate pelvic care. So, That's cool. awesome. And now you are. Yeah. <laughs> now <I am>. um, <laughs> let's zoom out a little bit. And this is where I feel like we have so much ground to cover. And, and I think probably a lot of questions are going to start to be thrown around here too, as you, as you get into this. Um, so to zoom out a little bit, what is, pelvic PT. Um, we kind of, you know, are talking about your interest in it, but can you give us kind of an overview of really what it is and, and how it's different maybe than traditional PT? Yeah. So 
I mean, I don't think it should be that different than traditional PT, but truly what makes us different and what makes us identify as a pelvic PT or OT um, is that we really value and we're specifically trained in how to directly assess the pelvic floor. Um, and so the majority of these therapists have been through postdoctoral training to learn how to do internal assessments to adequately assess the internal musculature of the pelvic floor. Um, and that can be rectal or vaginal assessment. Um, and so I would say that's like the, like the dividing line of like pelvic PT and not is someone who's trained to do an internal assessment. Um, but I would say the more global, like that drawing out and like looking what makes us different is we really shouldn't be that different. Um, and I think it's the lens that's different. It's that we think that the pelvic floor is the center of the human body, um, that it is a pivotal and foundational um, system, multidisciplinary system that therefore affects our whole bodies being musculoskeletal system, lymphatic system, organ support, you know, um, and ner nervous system. Um, so, I hope that answers your question. I, I think there's kind of two ways to look at it. One is like the actual education. And two, I think it's the lens in which we look at the body and how we prioritize the fact that this is an integral part of someone having whole body health. Um, and if we're forgetting the center of us, um, then it's going to be really hard to long-term fix other parts of our body or part of our nervous system or other systems that actively function because of what happens at our core. How do you define like what exactly the pelvic floor is as someone who's not in your field? You know, like, is it just the musculature or is it accounting skeletal system <laughs> organs? Like what is involved in your area? Um, so yeah, so we would consider the pelvic floor from a musculoskeletal standpoint that it is a group of muscles that live in the bottom of our pelvic bowl. Um, they basically connect from your tailbone to the front of your pelvis um, and your hip to your hip. Um, I have a lovely little model here. Um, but so this is what we would consider the pelvic floor is truly like this bowl of muscles. Um, however, those muscles uh, directly impact our hip joints, um, our low back, our SI joint, um, so there is like a, a collective of um, functions that the pelvic floor provides, including support and sexual function, um, core stability, organ support. Um, but at the like root, what we're assessing is the muscles, the ligaments, and the tissues in that pelvic bowl. I like your answer of... Um a big part of what makes you different is the lens that you're looking through. I think when I think of pelvic PT at the superficial level, I think of the pelvic floor only, like we're talking about your, your traditional issues that we might associate with the pelvic floor, but that's really not all that you do. It really is broader than that. And, and, but the lens that you're looking at it through is from specifically focused on the pelvis and the pelvic floor. We'll get into that in a minute, I think, but. Sure. So, I mean, um, I was just gonna say that, like, with that, I think it, um, it impacts how we view, like, the all the systems of the body. Um, and I think that is also how pelvic PT has evolved. Because it did used to be, like, when you went to pelvic PT, like, all you got was internal work. And you laid on a table and you had, you know, biofeedback or internal muscle work, and then you got up and you left. Um, but it's really evolved over the last like decade to several years that like no muscle is isolates, no muscle functions in isolation and the pelvic floor is not exempt from that. So, you know, just like when you go to PT for your knee and you're doing ankle stabilization and hip strengthening we have to take into consideration that laying on a table, only having intervention to a couple muscles in the pelvis is really a disservice because even when we cough and sneeze, that's not the only muscle group that's actually working. Um, so I think that has been a big evolution in just pelvic PT in general, and also a sign on how to find 
an adequate physical therapist, because if that is what you are experiencing, um, then we should be asking questions. That's good advice. Yeah. So who is pelvic physical therapy for? I think, again, uh, we kind of tend to maybe put in a box that this is a service <laughs> for women who specifically have a set of issues. Um, but that's that's not true. I mean, you're, t- you're telling us right now that it really is broader and, and covers more uh, issues and more people. So who who is pelvic PT for? Um, for every human being that has a pelvic floor or a pelvis, <laughs> um, realistically. Um, so, I mean, the pelvic PT, there are like niches within niches. <laughs> like we say that, you know, pelvic PT is a niche, but my niche in pregnancy postpartum is a niche. Um, there are people that suffer with neurological illness, like strokes and spinal cord injuries. There's um, children with bedwetting and incontinence and constipation. There's um, the elderly with cognitive deficits and you know musculoskeletal changes. Um, men is a very underserved population. Um, post-surgical, both like prostatectomy and also um, uh, hysterectomy or endometriosis, endometriosis excision. Um, so realistically, every person that has a pelvic floor um, could potentially be in need for pelvic PT. Um, and the majority of if people fall into like any of those particular uh, groups of people, um, they're there are very like generalist pelvic PTs. And then there's others that do tend to like go down a path. Um, There are ones that only treat kiddos and there's ones that specifically focus on neurological populations. um, Some that really focus on men or transgender. Um, So really everyone can benefit from it. um, And it can it really like at the bottom really impacts again our foundation because if you're peeing pooping or having sex and having a problem with one of those three things you could probably benefit from PT. that was the next question i was going to ask is what sort of symptoms i I ultimately want to go and and look through the lens of running and athletics and sport Mm -hmm. but um what what sort of things should people be aware of that a pelvic PT should be the professional that they are looking for, for help. I mean, I think you sort of (laughs) defined that really well. Yeah. So the glaring ones are any issues that are outside of normal, which is like, we shouldn't really have to think about peeing, pooping and being intimate with our partners. So if there is a hesitation, pain, or some some sort of abnormal behavior or sensation around any of those three um, very human activities, um, then ultimately those people are appropriate for pelvic PT. Um, so, I mean, uh, I can list out some of them for you. So some of the obvious ones are anyone who's having leakage of urine or fecal matter, um, or air for at that matter, like that can also be a source of leakage. Um, anyone who has urgency, um, to both bowel or bladder. So these are the people that are like, whole, I got to go like right now. Um, and if that impacts their life or is happening incredibly frequently, um, it will impact their life. And that's someone that would benefit. Um, someone who has low back SI joint pain, hip pain, or tailbone pain, um, particularly around having a baby or not, having surgery, um, being within the first year postpartum. Um, and also if they have received traditional medical care or physical therapy and have not gotten better or stayed better to me, that's a sign that there it's the whole picture has not been addressed. Um, and let's see what else. So pain with intimacy, um, decreased sensation with intimacy, um, constipation, um, I don't know if I'm missing anything, but those are some of the major ones. Um, and outside of that, their pelvic PTs could be the people to find issues that are, um, originating from the pelvis or the trunk, um, without any of those major pelvic symptoms. Um, and again, that could just be like, a you know, a hip pain that keeps returning, um, or someone with recurring low back pain, um, rib pain, um, 
yeah, so there can be not pelvic symptoms and someone can be very appropriate for pelvic PT. And that was actually going to be my question is like, how often do you see someone come in for knee or ankle pain or back pain? And then they're like, oh, you're actually like, no, it's actually your pelvis because your pelvis is not stable. Um, how often do you see that walk through? So how, much, how often do like, I actually see that? Yeah. Not really that really? often. I will say it kind of can go the other way more often. Like I'll have someone in my clinic with incontinence. And then since we look at the whole chain and I take in consideration the whole body, I'm like, oh, well, your hip abductors are weak and your great toe doesn't extend. And they're like, oh, yeah, I've had this lateral knee pain for like decades. I'm right. like, well, let me watch you walk or let me watch you run. Right. Um, because of the way my clinic is kind of specialized, I don't necessarily um, always take on clients like if a client is like post-op, you know, right. knee pain or something. Um, so I, I don't really see it the other way as much right. as I see. And then the person comes in and they, you know, are an athlete and we start talking about it. And yes, I look at the pelvis typically primarily, especially if they have a major, um, pelvic floor complaint, but then right. it go like we go up and down, right. We got to go above and below, um, where the main complaint is. And then typically those subjective complaints or th th that history kind of comes out oh yeah, I like sprained my ankle, you know, 18 times when I was yeah. um, in college or, uh, oh yeah, I've always had this weird shoulder thing or I always get this <clears throat> knot in the side of my rib cage. So it you should be probably more a lot, common. I would say you probably saw it a lot more in your general orthopedic stuff, right? Or you would have associated it more with that. And then, cause you get more of a vast population since you're so specialized now you're getting Yeah. So when I was in a more generalized setting, um, and that way sometimes it's hard to get buy-in though, because yeah. those people, they aren't necessarily coming in there for an internal Correct. pelvic exam. So, you know, when they're in there for their knee, they're not totally like on board for that yet. Um, but once they like do realize that like, Hey, like, okay, we've, corrected the knee, we've corrected the hip, but if the, if something's not adding up, um, then I kind of go down the road of like, Hey, I think this is worthy of exploration because of like this history of symptoms. Right. And then many times they will be like, Oh yeah. Like I do leak when I do this, or sometimes I sneeze and I leak, but it's only every once <clears> in a while. Um, and it'll come out that cause they don't think it's related or they don't think it's important. Um, but ultimately again, it's that the pelvic floor is in the middle. <laughs> so right. if they're lacking control or stability or awareness or strength or coordination, um, it could be presenting as you know, chronic knee pain. I will throw myself out there as an example because I, I'm actually currently working with Maggie um, and it started as a hamstring issue. I've been dealing with a hamstring issue for a long time um, and at some point and wasn't seeing the improvement that I was hoping to see. And at some point someone suggested maybe this is less of an issue specifically with your hamstring and you've got some pelvic floor dysfunction going on. And I was like, okay, well, I know Maggie, I'll go see her and we'll see what happens. And the first appointment was like, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I wouldn't consider myself a typical someone who would need to seek out pelvic PT. I don't have a lot of the like kind of standard symptoms. Um, but we found a lot of issues that were kind of underlying and hadn't been addressed or recognized or, um, yeah, so sort sort of a non-traditional route that way too. That my issue is not necessarily traditional. It's a hamstring. It's a running injury, um, but it is kind of coming from my pelvis and the way that I'm moving or not moving. Rather, um, <clears throat> I, I found that really really interesting. That I wouldn't have had I not had a personal connection. I'm not sure that I would have sought out pelvic PT. Mm -hmm. But it's been um, very eye opening. I think. Yeah. And Maggie made a really good point. I, I think with, like in emergency, because I work in emergency medicine, Maggie, too. So like we're always told to like look above and below, you know, and like mm -hmm. look, examine every joint. But it's good for people to think, I think, here, too, if like you're having some lower back issues or some knee issues or something like that, that maybe you need to look at like the centerpiece of this all. And then maybe there could be some imbalances that need to be addressed. And uh, imaging is not going to tell you that you have right. pelvic floor dysfunction, right? Correct. Unless you have like 
a muscle tear post, you know, vaginal delivery or something. Um, Because the MRIs are going to be relatively inconclusive, which people are always looking for, right? Like that information Mm -hmm. to tell them or validate that something's wrong, right? Or there's like a reason for their diagnosis or their symptoms. Um, So yeah, the the pelvic floor is... um, I don't know, mysterious or like, you know, cause it's, it's not going to show up in a static image. Um, but there can be a lot going on, but as someone's going to have a negative and, and bowel and bladder stuff, right. In emergency medicine, like that's, that, that's a red flag, <laughs> right. Correct. Um, yeah. but when everything comes back negative potentially, and you know, they yeah. don't have, uh, you know, disc protrusion or something major going on. Yeah, the or biggest question they, yeah, the bigger question they always ask them, what's wrong with me? And it's like, you know, as an emergency medicine, it's like, well, it's, it's not anything that's going to kill you. Uh, but, right. you know, there's definitely something and else going on. And you should go see on. a public PT. Is now yeah, exactly. I, do refer, I do refer quite often to PT. <laughs> uh, I do, because I think it is very helpful. So mm-hmm. that's good. Yeah. So let's move specifically into the lens of running. Um, I think I think there's a lot of different avenues we could go down here, but let's. Your specialty um, is prenatal, postnatal care. So let's start there. We have a lot of athletes who are um, either currently running while they're pregnant, or they are postpartum, or they've been through that journey multiple times as a runner. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's start there. What should what should runners know about prenatal postnatal care or athletes in general it doesn't have to be runners specifically but yeah um so as far as pregnancy i feel like i'll be a little bit brief on that but as far as pregnancy i think um we need to make sure that our body is keeping up with the forces that we're not dealing with you know pubic symphysis or hip or si joint pain for two days after we take a run, right? Um, That's a sign that our body is not handling the load and um, it's okay and necessary to slow down during pregnancy. Um, Some people are totally on board with that. Um, Runners, you know, we tend to be more like high energy in control type A people and slowing down and doing less just because we're 37 weeks pregnant is sometimes not how we thought it was going to go. So, uh, and, and I would take that for like any symptom. So yeah, that could be pain or, a you know, new signs of leakage or uh, a sensation of heaviness or dragging. Um, we're just honestly feeling really um, energetically drained, you know, like our bodies are doing a lot of work um, that as a society, we just kind of better like take it for like, oh yeah she's pregnant. It's like, no, like there's a lot of shit going on in the, inside that body. Um, and running is, um, you know, a high intensity activity. Um, it keeps our nervous systems in a, a very fight or flight sympathetic, um, state. Um, and so that with any potential symptoms, um, I think is a sign that we need to make sure that we are, uh, not overdoing it for the sake of staying athletic. Um, because there is a very necessary amount of change that needs to happen in pregnancy. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the whole, like, listen to your body thing, um, especially as athletes, because we, one, we don't. And two, when we do listen, we're like, oh, you'll be fine. Just keep going. <laughs> um, until, like, you quite literally get to a point where you can't. So, like, as runners, I feel like as a collective, um, that doesn't work uh for my type of people that statement doesn't typically work and so therefore i'm not really a fan of the listen to your body i think uh as a population of runners and women we kind of need parameters like what does that mean like oh i just peed a little bit that's no problem it's like well no it's a it's a symptom it's a sign it's your body whispering you know it's it instead of knee pain it's leakage it's like it's, it's the same information that your body is trying to tell you, but for some reason we are like, oh, it's cool. I'm 35 weeks and I'm running and I'm leaking a little bit, but it'll be fine. Um, but at that point, your body's trying to tell you that it's not handling load well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of my comment on pregnancy is I'm all for maintaining movement, but I think we need to be smart about it and think about our movement and our, le- our athleticism on a like global scale and not a... Um, I have to stay as fit and as strong as possible during this pregnancy um, because we can do things that um, risk our long-term athleticism by trying to 
meet unrealistic standards and forcing ourselves to um, for our bodies to do things that are maybe not the best for us um, in the moment. So I think we have to refocus and not say, and I was that person. I was that pregnant person. I was like, I'm going to be so fit. Like I, I was doing burpees, like, <laughs> which is probably why, <laughs> I don't know if that's related to why I had diastasis, but um, <laughs> you know, uh, but um, so that's, that's my comment there is I think we really need to like take that broad view out and be like, okay, what does long-term athleticism look like? If I run through this now, am I going to end up with prolapse? And, or if I take a break now, can I spare pelvic floor injury and have a many more decades of athleticism versus just the next two months? Um, Before we move on, I think, I think it's becoming a lot more recognized that pelvic PT should be a part of your postnatal care. What about during pregnancy? Do you think that specifically for an athlete or a runner that pelvic PT should be part of their pregnancy plan? Should they be in seeing you before they get to the the postnatal stage? 100%. So part of what we're trying to do at Gaia is create a program that does look like that. So for the woman who doesn't really have any issues, who doesn't deal with pain or leakage or like these glaring pelvic floor symptoms, um, we are trying to get them in um, because so that we can do an assessment of what their pelvic floor function is. And I mean, I would say at their baseline, but let's be honest, even if they're coming in 20 or 30 weeks pregnant, that's not their baseline. Their pelvic floor is already responding to carrying. Um, but it's more baseline than it's really hard to get people like in when they don't have symptoms and they're not even pregnant. Like that's really difficult to um, convince people that it's important. Um, but so yeah, during we are like trying to find a relative baseline um, and assessing how they're using their pelvic floor and if there's any behaviors that could increase their risk um, of pelvic floor dysfunction postpartum. Um, and I would say the other thing is, I mean, we do a lot of what we call birth prep. Um, so uh, a comment just again on like runners tend to be more in that type A, more like sympathetic nervous system type of people. We tend to see higher tension in those people or a higher resting tone in the pelvic floor. Um, So it becomes really important for us to teach those people how to lengthen and create space and efficiently push. Um, So that's something that uh, we are trying to, um, I guess, establish like routine care, which doesn't really happen um, in mainstream medicine. But yeah, hundred percent. I love having pregnant women in here when there's nothing seemingly going wrong. Is there anything with like uh, with like this this pre prenatal type of pelvic floor therapy that shows that it helps with like vaginal births afterwards or ease of or anything along those lines? I'm sure there are some sort of studies out there, but I'm just curious. Yeah, so the studies are pretty limited because. Um, well, so just doing studies on pregnant women in general yeah. is very limited. Um, or just do, even anecdotally, and, is there anything that you have? So from anecdotally, like your... you could ask, yeah, a room full of pelvic PTs and we'll say, yes, we can make you more efficient pushers. Um, we can reduce your risk of tearing and reduce your risk of pelvic floor dysfunction. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, so I don't, I don't know actually exactly what the stats are on that. Um, again, just because it's hard to track that kind of stuff. Um, but there is research out that shows that even just doing a childbirth education class, so just like any childbirth education class provides better birth outcomes. Yeah. So if we're taking, and like, this is like way more than just educational, right? Like this right. is like hands-on, this is individualized right. intervention um, and specific to like their body. Um, and again, anecdotally, like I've treated many women that from have had like several C-sections and then right. we've, um, assisted them in a vaginal delivery. Yeah. Um, and decreased tearing with subsequent births when they've torn pretty significantly in prior births. Um, so yes, I would say it's out there. I just don't know exactly what the, if the research is yeah, that's efficient fine. In Even it. anecdotally, it's nice to know because if you have someone that's like, yeah, this is my second or second or third kid and, you know, this was this was so much easier than the first couple or and I haven't had as much leakage throughout, you know, my when I was carrying or anything like that. So 
all that sort of stuff is helpful. I'm sure just to hear it and know. Yeah. Yeah. So is there anything like, I guess, and this is maybe not out of, this might be out of your niche a little bit, but is there something like, do you see as age, age is a factor in pelvic floor health or strength? And is there something that people can do? Like, say you have no symptoms at all. Maybe you are or are not an athlete. Is there stuff you can do to prevent losing? I don't know whether they lose strength or they lose, you know, mobility. Like, I guess, I don't know if I'm phrasing my question properly, but, you know, to keep pelvic floor health up as you get older <laughs> beyond the childbearing years, whether you're man or woman, is there something you can do to ensure that you're staying as healthy as possible? Yeah. So on a global aspect, I mean, aging does not uh, choose which symptom or which system it's going to affect, right? So our typical effects of aging, you know, like decreased hydration of the tissue, um, uh, I mean, you know, I would argue that the only reason that older people have a lack of mobility is because of the society that we live in right now. Um, but there's plenty of old people that have plenty of mobility, um, but they choose to stick with it. Um, but the aging in general, like there is a change in musculoskeletal um, function and health and physiology because of the effects of just being on this earth under the effects of gravity after a certain number of years. Um, for women specifically, like peri and postmenopausal is huge in my field, um, particularly with athleticism and not, um, because when we get that um, decline of estrogen, our musculoskeletal system is hugely dependent on that estrogen supply. Um, it is what keeps our tissue red, not red, but like pink and hydrated and with good blood supply. Um, it keeps the tissue um, supple and it, ha it helps create our lubrication system. Um, so when that starts to decrease, um, women who didn't have any symptoms may start to have symptoms um, purely just because of their decrease in estrogen. They can be the strongest they've ever been in their life. Like they can be in their prime as far as athleticism. Um, but they can start to recognize changes in their tissue, their sexual function, um, their urinary and bowel symptoms, um, because of the decrease in estrogen. Um, so that is part of why strength training, particularly for women is so important because we start losing that strength in that cross-sectional area of our muscles, um, what, around age 30, like there starts to be like a 1% decline every year or something like that, right? Um, so our pelvic floor muscles, our skeletal muscles, and they're experiencing the same thing that our glutes and our quads and our biceps are. Um, so if the changes are significant enough, it can be a woman that can um, run 10 miles without leakage and all of a sudden she starts experiencing leakage when she never has before and you know her kiddos are 15 16 and 20 right um and so it's not directly correlated to her birth um but that is why strength training um becomes so important because it does affect our pelvic floor muscles um and then there's a whole other direction we could go with that you know as far as like estrogen support and you know menopausal care and stuff like that to help. Um, but those people are not a lost cause, right? Like they can come to PT and with pelvic floor training and breath work and strength training, um, and maybe utilizing medical management for estrogen. Um, uh, so there's a lot of research out there about, um, topical estrogen right now and how beneficial it is for, um, particularly this population. Um, it can be very, very valuable and these women, um, really do need care. So what's that was a, a great question. Yeah, that was a great question. What's a typical, I, I know this could probably go off into a wormhole, but, and I, and I know it kind of varies. Well, maybe varies because you're kind of seeing this as a whole and you're encompassing all of these symptoms as pelvic floor dysfunction. What are you typically like when you're diagnosing someone with pelvic floor dysfunction, like what types of exercises or what sorts of like routines or things? And you don't, and I know that could be, like I said, it could be a very, uh, wormhole question, but in, a, in like a, just a 10,000 foot view, like what does that look like typically training wise or, or, uh, just from a rehab standpoint? Yeah. So, um, 
I mean, to, so yeah, to try to keep it clear. So like when someone comes in um, and I think that um, an internal assessment is appropriate at that point. So we typically start with a more like focused pelvic floor kind of um, view, like an right. internal assessment. Um, I'll say the majority of people think that people come to me because everything is loose and weak and falling out. Um, and I would say that does happen. However, um, that's not the majority of what I see. The majority of what I see, I would say 70, I don't know, 70% of my patients, maybe even 80 come from a place of tension. Um, and so the first things that people get are typically spinal mobility, hip mobility, and breathing re-education. So teaching people how to actually um, release the pelvic floor muscles if that's what needs to be done. Um, if they are part of that smaller population that I feel like actually needs like contraction and strengthening directly at the pelvic floor, then that's where we'll start. And then session by session, we start kind of getting a little bit more like global in body. So it is super important for me that within three sessions, I'm getting someone off the table. Um, so if someone is appropriate for say Kegel training, um, they can start on the table because they have to find their pelvic floor. Um, but then we are very shortly after that in a couple sessions, we are changing position. We're getting in hands and knees. We're standing. Um, and ultimately, uh, it depends on what the person does like in their lifestyle, right? Like, <coughs> are they trying to return to run or are they a mom at home with four kids? Like just trying to like not have a house exploded and pick up laundry and pick up things up off the floor and um, cook, you know, and that kind of thing. Um, so we kind of make it look like whatever their life looks like at the moment. Um, right. But that includes a lot of breath work is the majority of what I do um, and figuring out if the person needs a little more relaxation or a little bit more tightening, strengthening, um, and then training the coordination of that through a lot of functional movements. So we're quickly, you know, doing side planks or lunges or squats or things like that. So uh, I've never done pelvic floor therapy. Mm -hmm. um, but so what do you mean by breath work? I'm just coming from like, a, I have no idea. Are you doing like just trying to teach to relax or is that how does that work? Yeah, so the way I teach breathwork, um, I call it like 360 breathing. Um, so the majority of people, if they're even people who don't know about breathwork, they know something, they know what like diaphragmatic breathing is, right? right? right. Um, so what I'm looking for, particularly in an internal exam, is I should be able to feel the pelvic floor muscles relax on an inhale. So if the diaphragm kind of sits in your chest right. like this and the pelvic floor sits underneath, they should kind of work in unison like a piston. And when you inhale, the diaphragm and the pelvic floor descend. And when you exhale, they rebound or contract, mm -hmm. right? Um, so with an internal exam, I can feel if that's happening or not. Um, and so if that pattern is off, like if the pelvic floor is not responding, but we're breathing, um, I am retraining them with cues and internal feedback um, on how to then get the system back online, basically. Um, and I do that by giving cues on like how to breathe, how deeply to breathe, imaginative cues about like, you know, can you envision the muscles opening around my finger? Can you tighten the muscles around my finger? Um, I cue the rib cage sometimes. Um, so for me, breath work comes down to like at its most basic function, the pelvic floor and the diaphragm are besties and they need to be in unison. Um, the majority of what I see and feel, particularly in my tension folks, is that when that person's inhaling and de uh, inhaling and exhaling, dehaling, I don't know what that is, um, <laughs> they, the pelvic floor is not moving. Yeah. And so that creates ten oh, tension over time. It would be like someone who doesn't get terminal knee extension over and over and over again. Ultimately the knee's not going to extend very well right. because the joints, the ligaments, the fascia, the muscles in that area, if it's not being utilized in its end range, it, the body is like, well, I don't have any reason to need that. So I'm just not going to do it anymore. Um, so I, 
basically teach them, re-educate their muscles, their body, their system, their the way their brain is utilizing their system to create that lengthening and get that coordinate, coordinated pattern back. Um, it's kind of tough. It's almost, yeah, it's almost like teaching yourself how to like rerun in a way, right? Because Yeah, and it can be very difficult um, depending on like how self-aware the person is and how connected or not they are to that part of their body. Um, and it's really challenging, right? Because like it's one thing to know you have shoulder pain and being able to, you know, stand in the mirror and say, can you do this with your shoulder? But this is a part of your our body that we can only connect to it by what it feels like. Right. Or what someone is telling us that the experience should look or feel like. We can't necessarily look at it and see it relaxing or contracting. Um, and for some people, that is very, very difficult. And that's yeah, why yeah. I use so many different cues and body parts um, and assessment tools to try to figure out what works best with their body to try to get their body to respond in the way that I'm looking for it to. I think that's a huge benefit of working with a professional is just like you said, is this is something that you have to really be able to feel and tune into and understand what it's supposed to feel like. And you mm -hmm. might think that you know what it's supposed to feel like. And you suddenly you go in and someone is cueing you and telling you how you should be doing it and realize that's a huge blind spot for you. Um, yeah, so and I breath think... work is like that, right? Like when you like go to an online yoga class or even an online like, um, you know, postpartum or prenatal and um, and they're like, take a deep inhale, right? And like everybody's like, <sighs> and yeah. all the air goes into their chest. Like there's no air going into their pelvic floor. Um, and for some people that might be okay. Like they might not be symptomatic. They might ha not have problems. But when someone does have a problem and they're not operating efficiently, you have to find the way that their body responds to the cue. And for some people, it's like giving them like, imagine your pelvic floor is releasing. For some people, it's focusing on their tummy. For some people, it's their rib cage. For some people, it's the sound or the shape of their mouth when the air comes in or out. Um, so yeah, it's, it's very different. It can be really. So in looking at return to run programming, um, Maybe we can start specifically from postnatal return to run, um, and also maybe we can expand upon that down the down the way. But what what does that look like for for someone who's been through the delivery process? We know, like, if you go to your OB, they'll tell you, okay, six weeks you're clear, or eight weeks you're clear, or whatever their recommendation is. Go out into the world and be. So what? Which is what, exactly what happens? <laughs> yeah. So what what should people know about return to running, return to exercise, uh, postpartum. So I think the biggest thing that I think resonates with my patients is when I tell them that six weeks is very arbitrary. Um, six weeks was designed. It's, it's typically like, um, a very routine, acute healing phase. So if someone, um, you know, did have tearing or a cesarean, um, or even just, even if they had a really great birth and didn't have really any injuries, there is still an injury where the placenta pulls off the uterine lining. And that's like why we bleed, right? Like that, that's a wound. So ultimately the six weeks is, uh, acute tissue healing time is typically adequate at six weeks. Okay. Um, but for us in a return to exercise program, six weeks is a yellow light. It is not a red light, green light. It's not at five weeks and six days, you are not appropriate to exercise. And at six weeks and one day, after you walk out of that OB OB's office, you can go do whatever the heck you want. Um, so what I tell my people is that uh, it, it needs, there needs to be a progression. Um, and it's very dependent on one, just like what's going on and like what, what did happen in their birth and what injuries did they sustain? Um, but there's like sleep and nutrition that go into that. Um, because if someone is really like jumping off the couch to go run at six weeks, um, there are a lot of times alternative motives to that. And yes, they might be a runner and like need that mental stimulation, but they're, are a lot of times it's not just like, oh, I just want to get back to running. There's, you know, aesthetic pressure. There's, 
um, being alone pressure, there's like escaping stress pressure. Um, so what it should look like for me is um, someone can start moving relatively early, um, but at six weeks, our body, our pelvic floor is not ready to accept the load that comes from running. So if someone does not have a lot of injury and they um, are like, I don't want to say handling motherhood well, but like, you know, if like the baby's like sleeping pretty good and they've got feeding down and they have a support system and they're eating well, um, I help people move around between one and two weeks postpartum. That looks like walking, that looks like breath work, that looks like spinal mobility, like child's pose and book opener. Um, it looks like very controlled movements of our body so that we can not get stuck in poor posture patterns. Um, and we can also prioritize healing. Doing some cat cow and child's pose and some gentle walking between one to two weeks postpartum is typically okay but it's that like very difficult situation to say like across the board, like everyone can start walking at one week because I had a C-section and I was still on Percocet one week later. Like I wasn't appropriate to be walking around my neighborhood. Um, but my friend who had a vaginal delivery at home with no tearing, she feels great. And she's a three-time mom and maybe she's got support and, Everyone's brought her meals and she's getting nutrition. She might feel like ready to go between one and two weeks postpartum. So that part is very individualized. Um, but the part that we can generalize is we start with intention, with coordination and breath work. And so these are very slow, focused and intentional movements um, and behaviors that we're taking our body through that are not... Um, undergoing excessive amounts of load. Um, after one to two weeks, typically in that phase, then we can start into body weight movement. And that can look like some squats and heel raises or stand up and sitting down from the floor, or it can look like a lot of different things. Um, definitely abdominal, hip and glute focused, because um, those are the areas that are impacted the most. Um, and then we progress into load. So using dumbbells or bands um, to progress the intensity of those workouts. Um, and then ultimately the last stage would be our impact hit and running um, with a progressive increase in either endurance or intensity or speed. Um, there are running guidelines that came out, um, which was basically just like a combination of um, combination of the current research they came out in 2019 though um but it basically was said that really there are going to be very few women that are ready to run before three months postpartum if they start on day two like there's no way that you can move through that progressive nature of movement and train load in a safe way much before 12 weeks and I say that as there are going to be people in the athlete world that can push that a little bit um, because of their training, their support, um, their body awareness, um, and maybe like if they are working with um, a skilled provider, they can maybe like hasten that a little bit. Um, but ultimately, they st they st we still want to move them through that progression. Um, some people just might move through it a little bit more than others. I mean, now, now do you want to talk about like, I think, I think this would be a good point for people to realize too, like how much changes throughout pregnancy within the pelvis, because there is quite a bit that changes. And like, I don't think many people realize that, that there's a pretty significant amount of trauma also that happens with birth. So I think just maybe like describing that for people so they understand, okay, like I'm coming back from kind of a, like a major injury essentially yeah because uh, you've had a lot of shifting in like of bones and ligaments and there's a lot of instability <laughs> uh, yeah exactly yeah i mean and i mean i mean i think that like gets to some of it but yeah i mean you know our uterus grows to 300 times its size at rest or not at rest uh you know not pregnant um 
there's hormonal changes um, and the musculoskeletal changes like can take months to right. like truly resume normal space and tension. Um, and yeah, I think people do forget that even if there is someone that has that, um, you know, unmedicated vaginal delivery without tearing or a lot of intervention, they still have a 10 centimeter wound in the side of their uterus. <laughs> like that is still very much a wound, um, that needs healing. And it's a lot of times why, um, providers will use like bleeding as a marker of like, are you doing, you know, too much if your bleeding increases. Um, but I think it's like, it's just like so much more about like all those changes. Yes. And that like, we have to prioritize healing right. again, going back to that, like, uh, long-term athleticism. Like if you want to run into your fifties and sixties and seventies, like, we have to take this short amount of time relatively in the span right. of our life, right? Like 12 weeks to really prioritize like intention, awareness and true tissue healing so that we're not putting ourselves at risk to go out for a three mile run at six weeks and develop a prolapse because our body's not ready to handle that. Yeah, it's just not worth uh, it. I'm sure. <laughs> So, I mean, you would think that, but then like yeah. in the, when you're in the moment, like when you are that woman who's like been running for her whole career and right. like I ran at four weeks post C-section, my first one. Really? <laughs> yeah. So, and I was hurting and I was like, well, you know what? Like I, you know, again, there's aesthetic, there's society, yeah. there's, I'm going to go bonkers if I don't get out of this house. Um, and it's been our strategy to cope with whatever, you know, external stressors, internal stressors. Um, so it's like, if you haven't developed any other coping strategies and running's all you know, then you're like, eh, I don't know. It could be worth it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like you don't know what you don't know. And so if you're not sure what can happen, you're willing to take the risk, to be honest. Um, and I think that's, you know, the whole point of like this kind of conversation is that like, is it truly worth it? Because if that woman did right. know that all she had to do was like hang tight for like two to three months so that we could move her through a really well-guided program, prioritize healing and sleep and nutrition, and then get her back to running like really optimally for the right reasons, then she could have decades of running behind her versus, you know, a potential injury or struggling with chronic hip pain or incontinence or, you know, whatever it could be, um, down the road, but yeah, it's not worth it unless you are in that, in that season, then yeah. it's, it's hard to see that it's not worth it. It's very hard to see. It's not worth it when you're in that mm -hmm. moment and, and mm -hmm. your body hasn't been your own for a long time already. Right. <laughs> but yeah. I think, like you said, that's, that's, a, a huge benefit of pelvic PT becoming a more mainstream, people becoming more aware that this is a service you can get. There is help. There is guidance out there. Um, what? So let's say that somebody maybe is returning too quickly or maybe even they're 10 years postpartum, but they returned too quickly back then. Um, what kind of symptoms should people be looking for to know that, you know, they're being risky with, with the way that they're pushing things. Um, so I would say it could either be just a, it could be a progression of anything of leakage of tailbone pain of hip pain. Um, or it could also be like they, uh, experience one thing and then they fix it. Right. And then, they, so then they get back to running and then like something else happens in a different part of their body and then they go fix that and then they go back to running or weightlifting or whatever it is. And so, so like if it's like traveling around their body, but seemingly like, you know, hip, knee, ankle, you know, like, um, or the other pattern I would say is, uh, cause we'll as runners be like, oh, okay, now it's bad enough. I need to rest. Right. And so we'll take whatever, a couple days off. And then you'll be good for a while, and but then it'll come back. And you're like, okay, I guess I'll take a week off. <laughs> and then you take a week off, and then you come back, and then it's, like, still kind of there. And then you take a month off, and you go to therapy, and it seems to get better. But then as you, like, get back to therapy, once you get back to running, and maybe there's a particular threshold. Like, for me, it was, like, 
I could, I was good until I was running like three to four. And then once I was consistently running three to four miles, three to four days a week, then my symptoms would come back. Um, and so I would say that's the other alternative pattern is, um, it's just like, even it's, it's not really, it does, it's not, um, responding like a true overuse injury because an overuse injury recovers when you get rid of the use. <laughs> so when you mm -hmm. take this, when you take the rest, right, then there's typically improvements. Um, but if that's not happening and it's just being repeated. And again, if someone feels like they're failing traditional therapy, um, then to me, that's a sign that the pelvic floor probably is a culprit. I feel like, I feel like we could really expand into a lot of other categories and go down some real rabbit holes here. Um, I, I feel like for today, maybe we've sort of covered the the basics of pelvic PT and, and where to start. Do, do you guys have any questions on any other questions on sort of the basic level we've covered so far? No, I was going to oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Michelle. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, this has been so much. I'm just trying to digest everything. <laughs> like, it's a lot of great information. So I don't have any more. I think I know I will have more as I, like, sit and internalize everything. So I guess the, uh, just from a, a guy's perspective, are there anything or, like, things that, you know, guys should be aware of? Because I know it's, like, a predominant topic with women, but there's, I mean, there's a fair share of runners of men that probably have pelvic floor mm -hmm. dysfunction as well. Is there anything else with men that, that you see typically, or is it kind of the same common things that I you mean, see? So a women? lot of them do overlap. So any yeah. kind of the like bladder urgency, bladder pain, um, men can certainly experience leakage. Um, any of the bowel dysfunctions, constipation, um, uh, bowel urgency, tailbone pain, um, but also like, um, penile and testicular pain, like that can have a pelvic floor origin, um, hip, abdomen, low back, SI joint, like all those common areas that we both share, um, would, could all be reasons. And again, specifically, like if they've gone to therapy, like traditional orthotherapy or had injections or taken the ibuprofen or whatnot, right. um, and it just doesn't seem like it's getting to the bottom of it. And maybe they have like the ortho um, symptoms um, and like they, uh, I forget what the um, research says, but like, I mean, we think women are underserved in the pelvic floor department and we don't want to talk about our symptoms because they're embarrassing. There's a lot of men out there that like, they're not given the time of day. And like the only doctor that'll talk about like anything between their belly button and their knees is a urologist mm -hmm. um, and a really a urologist really their focus is on the urinary symptom right. system. So um, there's a huge gap for men. Um, but yeah, if there's men out there and athletes or not that are dealing with bowel and bladder, um, erectile dysfunction, um, pain with intimacy, um, like they really need to seek out pelvic PT. And like I said, there are more generalist practitioners that work on men and women. I just chose to niche into right. pregnancy and postpartum. Um, but there are definitely referrals out there and I can leave you with some resources for those cool. people too. That would be awesome. So tell us a little bit specifically about your practice. Um, because we didn't, we talked a lot about you. We talked a lot about pelvic PT. Um, you have founded and opened your own practice now. So tell us a little bit about, about that. Um, yeah, so we're located in Martinsburg, West Virginia. Um, uh, I don't know. I have a team of three providers now. Um, like we've mentioned, I, we do more specialize in the pregnancy and postpartum, but we do see women, um, before pregnancy, during trying to conceive periods who are going through IVF or other fertility treatments. Um, and I do see a handful of, uh, women in that like peri and postmenopausal range. Um, but more specifically, um, I work with women. Um, 
What else do you want to know? I was, I think, pleasantly surprised the last time that I was in there to see women of all ages that it wasn't just, I I thought maybe I was an older person going in Um, and I wasn't, you see people of all Uh, ages. um, And I thought that was, and I think that might be a category that I would be interested in discussing a little bit more in the future is the perimenopause, menopausal, um, Mm -hmm. you know, we have a lot of athletes that are in that phase also. And and I think that's very interesting. Um, yeah. So, okay. You're located, your in-person office is in Martinsburg. You also see patients virtually though, right? Like anywhere in yes. the, in the country. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, um, all of our sessions are like one-on-one with a therapist. Um, so specifically in Virginia, Pennsylvania, Maryland, and West Virginia, um, we can provide like, uh, therapy specific uh, intervention. Um, but as far as like just uh, pelvic consultation or trying to figure out if that's what you need, um, or even just like uh, corrective exercise, um, those are all things that we can do virtually um, anywhere in the country. Um, and the other thing that I do offer is uh, in-home treatment, um, specifically for women during the fourth trimester, um, which is basically zero to 12 weeks postpartum. Um, and I offer that in Maryland and West Virginia. Um, and so that is for women who uh, don't have a support system, so they can't really get out of their house. They maybe had extensive birth injury and it would be very difficult for them to leave the house. Um, or also just people who, um, just value me coming to them versus them coming into the clinic. Um, but I typically limit that to just early postpartum. You also are offering, I think I saw recently you have a running group going on a running walking group. That's very cool. Which has definitely grown even through the winter months. Um, so that's the first Saturday of every month. Um, and we kind of travel to different places, kind of in West Virginia um, and along the canal and things like that. Um, and I have, yeah, a group, some runners, some walkers, um, and all that information. Uh, you can either sign up for my newsletter or follow me on social media, and we put all the information on Instagram and Facebook. So I am going to put links in the show notes for all of your, your website, your social media, but real quick, what are, where can people find you on social media if they don't open the show notes? Yeah. Instagram is just at guy women's PT. Um, and Facebook is guy women's physical therapy and wellness. All right. Easy enough to find you. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Maggie. I, like I said, I would really love to have you back to go, deeper. Um, I hesitate to ask too many more questions and turn this into a three hour episode. I'm sure that we could. Yeah. Um, Thank you so much for taking your time to join us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Maggie.